and to you monsters trapped in the corridors. Be still, and give up your spirits. They don't belong to you. For most of you, I believe there is peace, and perhaps more, waiting for you after the smoke clears. Although for one of you, the darkest pit of hell has opened to swallow you whole. So don't keep the devil waiting, friend. Jeez, Scott. I know we didn't get along all the time, but condemning me to hell seems a bit extreme. Seriously though, can we turn on some air conditioning here or something? It's uh, getting a bit warm in here. Internet. Welcome to Game Theory! Now, FNAF 6 was a very different game from any of the ones that came before. Not because it had a weird roller coaster tycoon esque metagame connecting all the security camera maintenance you've come to know and tolerate from this series, but because it's much more explicit than usual. This game has a lot of talking, accompanied by clear visual storytelling to reinforce what you're hearing, meaning that a lot of the major plot points of this game are fairly easy to understand, which has got to be like a first for the entirety of this franchise. FNAF 6 is filled with a sense of finality. It's clearly meant to tie up all the loose ends and serve as the last game of the series. Or, let me be clear, the last part of the series covering what I'm gonna call the Purple Guy Saga. It's like Dragon Ball Z up in here. A saga which begins with a series of murders that result in animatronics coming to life, continues with the Afton family meeting with a series of terrible fates, and ends with the spirits of everyone involved getting closure, one way or another. Because this game feels much more obvious in its story, many online theorists have chosen to focus on the major story beats, actively ignoring the game's more unusual bits, the wrinkles that don't quite fit in cleanly. But it's in those wrinkles that we find answers to some of the longest held questions of the franchise, and the clues that we need to finally put the whole puzzle together. So stick with me and prepare to get a little wrinkly like a toe left in the bathtub for too long, because while today is certainly a theory, or rather multiple theories all in one episode, it's also me trying to open the door to you guys, equipping you with the information necessary to discuss the final points lingering around the edge of this mysterious franchise, finally closing the book on the Purple Guy Saga. Now before I get to the deep lore here, let me quickly run through the major reveals of this game just to make sure that we're all working with the same understanding. In the aftermath of FNAF 3's Happiest Day minigame, the spirits of Freddy, Foxy, Bonnie, Chica, and Golden Freddy have all been put to rest, which left only the lingering threads of spring trap with William Afton inside, Ennard with Baby inside, Michael Afton I'm a living corpse who used to have robot tentacles inside, and the puppet with nothing inside. Prior to the release of this game, Scott's two websites, scottgames.com and fnafworld.com were talking to each other in their source code, a conversation which showed Baby and Ennard getting into a fight and Baby basically getting voted out of the tribe, which is why in this new game the two are once again separate entities. Ennard in this game assumes the form of Molten Freddy, which, adding in this game's other new edition of Rockstar Freddy brings the total number of different Freddy forms across the entire series to 12. 12! 12 different Freddies alone! And you'll wonder why this game is confusing to talk about. Baby, meanwhile, becomes Scrap Baby, complete with a lobster claw and roller skates because Scott was like, Wee! It's my final game! I can make the designs whatever the hell I want to! Springtrap now has a cleft chin and heck, why not? There's a weird black bear named Lefty because why the heck not throw a 13 bear onto the pile. Throughout the game, you're not only tasked with handling the best characters ever, featuring such standouts as
America's number one crate in Mr. Hugs, but every night you'll find one of your old friends out in that back alley, and it's your task per paragraph four of your employment contract to salvage that animatronic, bringing them into your establishment. If you are playing this tape, that means that not only have you been checking outside at the end of every shift, as you were instructed to do, but also that you have found something that meets the criteria of your special obligations under paragraph four. Fast forward a couple nights to the true ending of the game where we learned that the whole pizzeria was just a trap made to lure the stray animatronics into the same place at the same time so that they and the horrors of Freddy Fazbear's could be finished off once and for all in a final blaze of glory. Even though that technically happened once before in FNAF 3 and Springtrap survived. But hey, who's counting? Me, but you know, that's what I do. And who of all people set up this trap? What is the identity of this mysterious cassette man? Well, the first clue we get is actually in the closing monologue. Although for one of you, the darkest pit of hell has opened to swallow you whole. So don't keep the devil waiting, friend. It's an old friend of William Afton's, Henry No Last Name Given. And if that lack of a last name sounds familiar, well, it should. I mentioned this guy a lot during that dark period where I used information from the books for my sister location theories. In the book series, he's the animatronic genius who partnered with William to create the Freddy Bots. And this isn't only speculation. One of the secret endings, the insanity ending, proves that this is Henry. If during the game you buy this freak show egg creature for way too much money, it causes your computer's power button to switch from green to blue. If you then hold the power button like you're starting the computer in safe mode, it causes a hidden recording to play. An audio tape that happens to be labeled H-R-Y. Henry. But the insanity ending shows us even more than just a light connection back to the novels. As Henry talks about his regret over ever helping William create the animatronics and his plan to lure everyone together to finish this off once and for all, we're shown a series of secret blueprints. Most of them provide a bit more detail into how this wacky world works. We're shown that Afton Scooper from Sister Location functions by infusing things with, for lack of a better term, soul energy, what Afton calls remnant. This is how Michael was able to survive as a purple corpse post his Ennard enema. We also see that Molten Freddy, formerly Ennard, still contains the souls of Ballora, Funtime Freddy, and Funtime Foxy, and that our mission under paragraph 4 is to specifically collect and destroy the Remnant once and for all. Remnant is destroyed by overheating, hence the fire at the end. We even learn the detail that literally no one was asking for, how to simulate children. The RASC, or Remote Activated Simulated C, C I'm assuming stands for child, simulates body temperatures of 98.6 degrees and then runs around making child noises. Hence how you're able to lure all the murderous animatronics around in this game, and also probably FNAF 3. But what's most surprising is the final blueprint. Lefty, that oddball black bear that just showed up in this game. A bear that, according to its acronym, is programmed to lure something by emitting a bracelet code and then encapsulate it with a combination of lullabies and controlled shocks. A bear suit that was made by Henry that has the soul purpose of capturing none other than the puppet. You can even tell it's already accomplished its goal if you look closely at this rare screen you sometimes get when you boot up the game. The signature striped arm of the puppet showing through the lefty animatronic. But it doesn't stop there. If you buy and then play the security puppet minigame three times over the course of your week in the restaurant, you see a child trapped outside the pizzeria wearing a bracelet. The puppet, a security device of all things, is trained to respond to her specific 
bracelet code, green, and so it chases her outside only to find her dying in the alley. Short-circuiting from the rain that's pouring down around it, it lies down next to her and the two fuse into one. And this lines up with exactly what we hear in the game's true ending. My daughter, if you can hear me, I knew you would return as well. It's in your nature to protect the innocent. I couldn't save you then, so let me save you now. It's time to rest for you and for those you have carried in your arms. Henry's daughter, the first victim, is the puppet. The one who gave life to everyone that came after her and gave peace to their souls in FNAF 3. Finally confirmed after I'd been predicting it for three years since the release of FNAF 2. So there you have it. Henry from the books is now canon in the games. His daughter is the puppet trapped inside Lefty. Everyone, including Michael, dies in the FNAF 6 fire, and Baby's name is established as Elizabeth in Henry's closing monologue. It's all pretty cut and dry. I mean, if you want to get really deep, the images on the walls in the alley are actually blurry contracts. You can tell based on the bullet points and oddly short paragraphs, which I have seen more than enough time to identify at a glance. And all of that relates back to that theme of what is paragraph four, which has been Scott's calling card for this game. The creepy imagery of the ventriloquist and clown that you also see in the alleyway isn't teasing some new game like a lot of people have been assuming, but rather it's just an artistic recreation of the Afton family. William is the ventriloquist the dummy, who looks exactly like him, represents Michael Afton, who, as we know, looks just like his father, just a smaller version of him, and has to parrot back a lot of what his father tells him to do. Elizabeth, aka Baby, is the clown, for fairly obvious reasons, and the bear on the leash is just Crying Child, a child who is trapped and held back by his family, who ultimately dies in the hands of Fredbear. FNAF 6 even offers explanations for the inappropriate costumes that were mentioned by the phone guy calls from FNAF 3. Yeah, you remember those? Until replacements arrive, you will be expected to wear the temporary costumes provided to you. Keep in mind that they were found on very short notice, so questions about appropriate... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. They're the mediocre melodies crew from this game, which also happen to match up perfectly to the other masks that you see during FNAF 3's Happiest Day minigame. A green one is Happy Frog, the pink one is Pig Patch, Mr. Hippo is purple, there's some blue one for some reason, and then Orville the Elephant is the orange one with the long nose. But for as much as FNAF 6 explains, and it explains a lot pretty explicitly, it leaves open three huge questions. Three questions that no one has been able to answer for the past two months until now. 
or at least I'm pretty confident that I can answer two of those questions. For the third one, I'm gonna need your help. Now, you don't need too much to get that true ending. You just salvage all the animatronics and survive all the nights. It's basic FNAFing 101. But there's another layer to this game, an ending that goes one step beyond just the base storyline. The Lore Keeper ending, where things start to get complicated in a hurry. To unlock it, you have to play three specific minigames through to completion. Security Puppet, Fruity Maze, and Midnight Motorist. Security Puppet was easy to explain. The others, though, are where the questions start to pop up. In Fruity Maze, the game starts to become more and more unstable as you progress through the three levels. By the end of the third stage, collectibles have transformed into slaughtered dogs and burial flowers. Your on-screen avatar is trailing bloody footprints, and the blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl reflected in the arcade screen is crying. And for good reason, since standing behind her is none other than the purple guy, dressed in his golden best. Now, this one's confused a lot of online theorists, but in my opinion, requires some process of elimination to solve. FNAF 6 is all about tying up loose ends, right? And at this point, the puppets set the souls of FNAF's core four of Freddy, Foxy, Bonnie, and Chica, as well as Golden Freddy Free in the Happiest Day minigame. Baby, the sister location crew, Springtrap, and the puppet are all taken care of by Henry in the true ending of FNAF 6, and the three toy animatronics from FNAF 2, which do seem to legitimately be tied to a security database, are scrapped at the end of their game. So who, or what, does that leave? Mangle. But I'm not saying that the girl is Mangle, I'm telling you it's her dog. Mangle is William Afton's first successful experiment with Remnant, Dog Remnant. Which now that I say it out loud sounds a lot more like dog duty than Miracle Soul formula, but let me explain. We obviously see that the girl's crying, but it's not because she's scared. We actually see that Will Trap is able to have a normal conversation with her, saying, He's not dead. He's still alive. Follow me. She's crying because her dog died, as represented on the screen. And that's the he that William's referencing here. Your dog is not dead. He is still alive. And we have proof that William isn't lying about this either. It's an odd detail that I've never talked about, but in the Save Them minigame from way back in FNAF 2, you're in a building filled with five dead kids and Purple Guy. All the other animatronics are stationary except for one. Mangle alive and well and unlike every other animatronic in the entire series roaming around on all fours even though mangle technically walks around on three legs but you get the point a design decision so important that we see scott keep it in mangle's quest from fnaf 3 as well mangle is alive without the puppet giving him gifts or giving him life so how is the mangle animatronic moving in this moment William, experimenting with animals and remnant. And as we see in the fruity maze, William uses the fact that the dog is still alive to lure this girl to her death, allowing her to be reunited with her dog forever. For more proof, notice that the dead dog in the Fruity Maze minigame is actually missing an eye, a detail that we see a chair with Mangle. Additionally, you ever notice how Mangle is the only animatronic that actually doesn't possess any human-like noises? The core four all feature moaning, sighs, or laughs at various points throughout the series. Ballora, Baby, Springtrap, and the Fun Times all talk. Even the nightmare animatronics breathe, which is a whole nother can of worms I'm not opening up today, but Mangle just has garbled radio noises, almost like it's cognitive functioning is much less than all the other possessed creatures in the series. So that's Fruity Maze, but then comes the biggie. Perhaps 
the most vague and bizarre moments from FNAF 6 come from the hidden easter eggs in the final Lorekeeper minigame, Midnight Motorist. It starts simple enough a top-down racer game, but glitch through an opening in the bottom of the track and suddenly you're on a rainy drive through a rural tree-filled landscape, visiting a bar named Junior's and eventually making your way to a lonely house hidden deep in the woods. Out pops the driver, and he's... Orange? Thanks, Scott. We finally solved the identity of Purple Guy and you just had to throw in one final monochromatic mystery man. Orange Guy? I like to call him Mustard Man. He charges into the house and rages at the fact that someone, presumably his son, has locked himself in his room. He goes around the back to find a way in, only to discover that the window is broken with a set of footprints and some bear tracks, leading to, quote, that place again. And that's it. The minigame abruptly ends there. No matter how many times you read play this game, it's always the same. It's weird, it's disturbing, and most of all, it's frustrating. Since it seems to introduce all new characters in a game that's mostly about bringing every other character's story to a close. But are these truly new faces? No. Look first at the house. A lone house in a clearing surrounded by trees. Believe it or not, but we've actually seen this house before on the title screen to FNAF 4. A lone house in a clearing surrounded by trees. Not only that, but both houses have two stories. Even the roofs look roughly the same. But now think back to a quote that I mentioned last episode about how Scott writes these stories. Quote, there have been other times, however, when my original intentions didn't come across clearly. In those instances, I make a point to clarify in the next game. FNAF 6 is all about clarifying, explaining Remnant, explaining the scooper, the puppet, and what's our connective tissue in this minigame? Someone sitting in a living room watching TV. And what did we see at the end of every night of Sister Location? Michael Afton going home after his shift to watch TV. That slouchy figure there may look like a balding grandma, but it's good old Mike Casual Bongo's Afton himself binging on his Immortal and the Restless. And I can further prove it via his text. Scott has always roughly adhered to the convention of dialogue colors being important. And this final game is no exception to this rule. Green Bouncer Dude talks in green, Orange Guy talks in orange, and Michael Afton on the couch talks in gray. Exactly like he did when he was laughing at his crying brother, back in FNAF 4. It's definitely a slightly different shade, but he's also the only one in the entirety of this series to speak in gray lettering. They also both wear gray shirts, only the truly fashionable match their t-shirt to their font color. Couple all of that with him watching TV, the FNAF 4 title screen house, which always has a TV in it, and the character being protective over some him, say a younger brother, and you have yourself the perfect portrait of the Afton family, which would make Orange Guy Purple Guy. Other otherwise known as William Afton. He's even got a signature purple car, the same one that we saw him use in the FNAF 2 Take Cake minigame before he killed off Henry's daughter. But why? Why would Scott choose to make William Afton some color other than purple for like the first time ever in the final game in the series? The answer is actually kind of mundane, because by this point in the series there are two different purple guys, William and his son. It would have been confusing from a storytelling standpoint. Though I do gotta say Scott it's not that much better since now you're swapping in a whole new color for a character who's been represented by another color the whole time. It's a bit confusing. Anyway, what does all of this mean? Why out of all things did Scott choose to show us this 
random scene? What is he trying to explain about the story through the battle between an orange William Afton and a runaway child? Plus, in a game that tries to answer everything from the entirety of the series, what was in the FNAF 4 box? So now, two years, three games, and four books later, I think I'm finally ready to break open the locks and reveal what was supposed to be in this thing versus what actually was in the thing. Because I have reason to believe that the contents of the box have changed three separate times, and that now, in the wake of FNAF 6, Scott has already shown us what is inside the box. Let me explain. FNAF 4 was released on July 23rd, 2015, and with it, the mysterious box ending. Exactly one month later, August 24th, Scott made a post on Steam referencing a Halloween update for the game, an update where he had considered opening the box. Quote, I wanted to post some information about the upcoming Halloween update. I started off a few months ago with several ideas in mind for what I wanted to release, ranging from DLC to a new game to opening the box, more on that later, but now I've been working steadily and have a pretty clear vision going forward, end quote. So, why wasn't the box included as a part of that update? Well, he explains it later in the post, quote again. Now, I want to talk about what won't be included, the box. You know, when I released the first game over a year ago, I was amazed at how quickly everyone found every bit of lore and story. Then the same happened with part two. Then part three came out, and once again, the story was uncovered by the community. But then I released part four, and somehow, no one, not a single person found the pieces. The story story remains completely hidden. I guess most people assume that I filled the game with random easter eggs this time. I didn't. What's in the box? It's the pieces put- This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape... You can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA together. But the bigger question is, would the community accept it that way? The fact that the pieces have remained elusive this time strikes me as incredible and special. A fitting conclusion in some ways, and because of that, I've decided that maybe some things are best left forgotten forever. End quote. So clearly in the month after the release of the game, disappointed that the mysteries were staying hidden, Scott had already changed his mind about what he wanted to do with this box. And I just gotta say, Scott, my man, you didn't even give me a shot at this one. You change your mind about a game's fundamental mystery in a month? So that begs the question of what he originally intended to be in the box. My theory, toys, a badge, a hospital wristband, and a picture of what eventually became known as the Afton family. The only time we would ever see them truly happy in this franchise. Remember, FNAF 4 was meant to be the final game in the series, and based on all the clues Scott left prior to the release of Sister Location, he absolutely intended for Freddy's to be a story told in the mind of a child. Maybe not so much in dreams, like dream theory would indicate, but perhaps in a coma, or on the kid's deathbed. I mean, sure, let me be clear, yes, 
case, there was absolutely a real-life string of murders informing this kid's visions, as evidenced by the puppet and the murder outside the restaurant. But I mean, look at what he just said in that Steam post. Most people assume that I filled FNAF 4 with random Easter eggs. I didn't. And now look at everything that lines up in this game. Toys that match the look and behavior of the toy animatronics. People getting shoved into suits by a guy hidden in shadows that would probably look like a murder to a young child. A boy carrying a balloon to inspire Balloon Boy. Bullies who wear masks that perfectly match the nightmares. Shadows that would literally inspire shadow animatronics. A mangled toy. The concept of a plush Bonnie that bites you. A child's phone and a child's fan to simulate the night guard desk. People walking around in animatronic suits like Springtrap. A grandfather clock like you would find in your home going off to signal the end of the night. The list goes on and on and on. And even though he'd moved on with the story, Scott still wanted us to figure it out, which is why on our October 5th, 2015 GT Live, Scott crashed the live stream, giving us explicit clues to figure it out. Four games, one story, why is Toy Chica missing her beak, and what is seen in shadows is easily misunderstood in the mind of a child. All three clues again pointing to the conclusion of some sort of coma theory, with the box containing the items alluding to that story. Toys and plushies to show where all the ideas for the animatronics came from. A badge to show that this kid's father worked at the restaurant as a security guard. A hospital band to make it clear that the child was rushed to the hospital in the aftermath of the Fredbear bite. And a happy family that we see shattered in the aftermath of a stupid prank. This box is locked and hidden away in an attic or a basement when the child dies. The memories it contains are too tough to bear. But the line of, would the community accept it that way, is the key phrase in all of this. Scott knew that the story, as he envisioned it, would be controversial for a fan base that was literally comparing shades of purple across the series. He had a solution to the story that he wanted to tell, but was now trapped by his own success. People were too interested in his mystery box, which is why Sister Location and everything afterward emphasized more real-life events. Scoopers and Remnant and literal purple people walking around outside. But before he got to that point, there was one other course correction. FNAF World, the pimply-faced puberty of the franchise. The game that, also like puberty, everyone wants to forget, including Scott himself. And it was here that Scott tried to unveil the mystery of the box a second time. If you played through the game normally, you would never see any connections to the box. You would just play through this bizarre fever dream of an RPG, and then finally kill Scott Cawthon himself as the final boss of the game. <laughs> yeah, in case you skipped over FNAF World, Scott is one of the final bosses and complains about how obnoxious the fans of the series can get. It is strange, it is funny, certainly meta, and most undeniably passive-aggressive. Anyway, if you linger on the opening dialogue between your character and Fredbear, you unlock a hidden quest that lurks beneath the surface of the game that was undoubtedly meant to tie into the mystery of the box. We're told that the quest requires us to, quote, leave breadcrumbs for him to help him find his way. The him we're helping is FNAF 4's bite victim, and we know this from the opening dialogue. Quote, something has gone wrong, that's why I'm here, but I won't let the same happen to you. I will put you back together. Haha, <laughs> the classic FNAF 4 line, so infuriatingly vague. Anyway, that line confirms that the you being talked about here is the bite victim, that the something has gone wrong is referring to the bite itself, and that the yellow eyes doing the talking, the one who is trapped here, is the puppet. From here, your secret quest is to find a series of clocks and complete mini games that directly relate to the steps necessary to unlock FNAF 3's happiest day ending. You push Balloon Boy into a box, you press four arcade buttons, you set up four cupcakes, etc, etc. And if you do everything correctly, your secret ending reads as follows. Quote, we're still your friends. 
Do you believe that? The pieces are in place for you. All you have to do is find them. And we know from FNAF 3 that the pieces are indeed found. On the cutscenes between nights, we find the clues that FNAF World left for us hidden in the hallway, telling us to do things like double-click Balloon Boy and collect the four cupcakes, which then enables us to complete the glitched minigames and release the spirits once and for all. But the important line of this FNAF World ending is, the pieces are in place for you. A line that very intentionally mirrors the language Scott used to describe the contents of the box in the first place. What's in the box? It's the pieces put together. And if you think that this is just a linguistic coincidence, it's not. Remember, Scott doesn't do coincidence. Because here's the real shocker. While trolling through the game's texture files, Reddit user Poi2010201, or at least his was the earliest post that I could find discussing this discovery, found that FNAF 4's box was actually hidden in FNAF World's code. But it wasn't just the box, it was a texture of the box, unlocked, and opened. So, for a second time, we clearly see that Scott had plans to reveal what was inside his mystery box. Which then begs the question, what was in it this time? And honestly, it's hard to say. As you can probably tell, FNAF World played with the lore of the main series in some very unusual ways. For instance, the clock quest showed that this weird, self-aware video game world was somehow able to influence the events of the real world, leaving breadcrumbs in the real world that you would be able to follow in FNAF 3. But because the game ends with the line, the pieces are in place for you to follow, it implies that the guard we're playing as in FNAF 3, the one who is actually finding these clues, was the bite victim, which then opens up an entirely different can of worms. And if it's all true that the puppet is stuck in this weird, nebulous FNAF world, then the world of the game is literally, or symbolically, limbo or death? Anyway, it's very messy. If I were to guess, Scott planned on FNAF World the game actually being the box, a game that literally contained all the pieces of this franchise put together. Yeah, it's a bit symbolic and half-baked, but, you know, so was FNAF World. But it was here that the mystery would change direction yet again. This time, though, it wasn't the community that prompted the change, but rather Scott himself, who made it clear that he was dissatisfied with FNAF World as a rushed and unpolished release. Embarrassed by the game, he quarantined it off to its own little segment of the franchise. And in the process, he retconned its story to focus on the new, more human drama-esque direction that the series would take moving forward. You can see this, actually, through creative changes like the game's new ending, which were revealed Henry and Baby for the very first time, as well as some lines that got added between updates, with glitched Fredbear foreshadowing something terrible coming aka Baby. Instead of being focused backwards on details from previous games like the Bite Victim and the FNAF 3 minigames, the game was now looking forward to a game that had yet to be released, which left the box and the resolution it promised for the entirety of the Freddy story once again abandoned. And when both Sister Location and FNAF 6 rolled credits with no mention of boxes, that's exactly where it seemed like it would stay. Forgotten forever. But I wasn't convinced. For as convoluted as the story often is, Scott cares too much about it, and cares too much about this community to leave a mystery this big unanswered. My first thought about connecting the box to the new game was Candy Cadet, the best character to ever come out of this franchise. Candy. Candy. If you visit Candy Cadet enough times and give him enough tokens, he'll tell you one of three separate stories, all sharing the same general theme of five objects merging into one object and then being put into a box. In the first, 
five keys are melted together into one key by a mother trying to save imprisoned kids with everyone dying trapped in their own room. The second has five kittens in danger of being eaten alive by a snake, the remains of which get sewn together and stored in a shoebox. And the third, well, the third is the most uplifting story as five orphans get adopted by a man who wants to protect them from a burglar, and it doesn't go so well. He left one day to buy food, his heart being filled with gladness but returned to find that the burglar had chosen his home, and killed all five of the children. The man could only afford one coffin, so he stitched the five bodies together to make one, and buried the child. That night, there was a knock at the door. So clearly, the Candy Cadet stories were making some connection to boxes. But what did all these stories mean? Characters getting stitched together immediately made me think of Ennard. But even at Ennard's peak, he only had four characters inside of him. Freddy, Foxy, Ballora, and Baby. So that one didn't quite work out. Famously, there were five children killed as a part of the missing children's incident. But their souls individually ended up in animatronics rather than being put together and crammed into the same box. There are five other games in the series. So maybe this is all a meta commentary about the franchise itself. But then what would it mean to stitch them together? Just solve the story? Were the stories fixating on different moments of the Freddy timeline? Suffice it to say, Candy Cadet led me straight to a dead end. A dead and stitched together end, that is. I gotta say, I scoured the game. I knew the box was hidden here somewhere, and I suspected that Candy Cadet was involved in some way, but I was so overwhelmed with information at this point. Clues whirling past me, vague mini-games and stories that had no concrete answers. Details of games upon games, cut, unused content. The box needed to be some solution that brought together all of these separate pieces. And then finally, the storm cleared and it all clicked. The final image of the game. During the true ending, Henry calls in to unveil his trap. You have all been called here into a labyrinth of sounds and smells, misdirection and misfortune. A labyrinth with no exit, a maze with no prize. We then see the schematics of the ventilation system we've been working with throughout the entire game. We see it for a long time as the center square, the actual pizzeria filled with kids, fades away. And what we're left with is a familiar shape. A box. A rectangular box. A locked box. A box with no exit. A box where, according to our responsibilities in paragraph 4, we put all the pieces together by salvaging the remaining animatronics, playtesting the minigames for all of the hidden lore, and finally bring the FNAF storyline to its end once and for all. As we bring this story to a close, what did Scott finally decide to do with the box? He made it Henry's trap in FNAF 6 to lure the final pieces together and finish him off once and for all. Like Candy Cadet told us over and over again in its three stories, the box is filled with five dead things becoming one. Five children killed, sewn together, and buried in one coffin. Five dead kittens, sewn together and kept in one shoebox. Five keys melted together and torched in one room. And in our case in FNAF 6, five animatronics trapped in one pizzeria simulator and burned. And this works any way that you count it. Baby, Springtrap, and Molten Freddy, who we know according to his blueprint has three animatronics in him, thus making five. Or you can count it Baby, Springtrap, Molten Freddy, Puppet, and our character who we play as Michael. Five characters all essential to the FNAF story brought into one box to die. Even Henry himself has a role here in the Candy Cadet stories. He's the innocent of those stories. The one who started 
started with good intentions who ultimately fails to protect those under his care. He's the mom who lets the kids burn. He's the kid who leaves the snake's cage open. It's Henry's negligence that allows the snake, the burglar William Afton, to claim so many lives. We hear him lament this in the insanity ending. It's only now that I understand the depth of the depravity of this creature, this monster that I unwillingly helped to create. This was Scott's subtle nod to the box in FNAF's final game. The way to work it in after all the twists and turns his story had to take over the years. Was it what he originally intended for it? Absolutely not. Is it the most obvious explanation? Not by a long shot. But when you consider that this animatronic empire started as one big unexpected twist in Scott's life and was then fueled by a story full of not-so-obvious narrative moments, having the box end up being a symbol for for the franchise's final climactic moment, it feels right. If I can borrow from Scott's original description, it feels special, a fitting conclusion. And in the meantime, remember, that's just a theory, a game theory. Thanks for watching.